We've come to the final part of the service, which in our church tradition is the message. And as you can see, there is a uh, missions report. Uh, Vicky just got back from England. I just came back from Istanbul. So we have lots of pictures. It's a pretty visual next uh, 25, 30 minutes. And after that, we'll have a brief message from the book of Philippians, which is kind of the book of the month. And so, look up. I was actually asked... Um, couple months ago to do a mission sermon today. And that worked out really well with the schedule as I had just returned from Turkey. You'll be hearing a lot about that in a short while. Turkey is really the second Bible land. After Israel, it's a close second and nothing else is number three. I'm very excited about Turkey. Vicky just got back from London. And so you're going to be hearing from my wife, Vicky, right now. It's always great to be back at North River. And when I came back from my trip, Mike Wyatt said, welcome home. And then he said, is this home for you? Like, you know, as we sing songs, like we just sung, you know, home is really where your heart is. And it's so much where your friends and your spiritual family is for me. And I just want you to know, this really is a home for me. It's a home for our family. And it is great to be back. Um, before I went to England, I spent the month of May with a lot of travel. And what was so exciting was being able to meet with so many disciples in small groups, literally across the world. Um, we were out in California at the beginning of May for our daughter Lily's graduation. She graduated finally from the university, from Pepperdine University. And on the Sunday, we got to meet with three family groups in Santa Monica. And it was, we met in a courtyard in someone's back garden. And to be able to be there with, and worship with people from the LA church, um, to be able to be there with our daughter who had just graduated. It was a tremendous time of joy, a tremendous celebration. And I think what was outstanding for me was the singing. Because often I find when you get in small groups, the singing isn't so good. But in all three of these churches, we had, and these small fellowships, we enjoyed an incredible time of worship. And it really knit our hearts. So we were excited to be out there in Santa Monica. We then actually took a family vacation. Um, which was fantastic, and Doug had planned a trip for us to go to Maui in Hawaii, in the, one of the smaller Hawaiian islands. Um, it's pretty close to LA. And at the end of our trip, well, that's close to me. Anyway, um, <laughs> the world's a big place. At the end of our trip, we were able then to meet with the Maui Church of Christ, um, part of our family of fellowship. And just earlier this year, they hired Kent McKean um, to be a full-time minister. They have not had a full-time minister in over 10 years. Um, and his wife is working full-time job, Heather, and they have two girls. But we were able to go and worship with them. Now, Kent is a master of leading songs, leading so many different parts of the congregation, but the worship was fantastic. And to be with people who've been on this little island, and it's in the middle of nowhere, it's a great place to vacation, but to be able, the highlight, I think, was to be with them and to worship. And we gave them your greetings. Um, Doug did a message, which was, it was Mother's Day back in May, and he talked about the four women in the book of Proverbs was very powerful, it was very insightful. 
was encouraging as a mother, but it was also very challenging to make sure that we really try to be like the godly women in Proverbs, because some of them do not come out so righteously. Anyway, I came home then for about six days, and I didn't plan my trip like Paul plans his trips as Doug will, going from place to place. I then flew to England, which is 11 time zones difference to... Uh, to Maui. And I don't know what I was thinking, but it was just the way it was. So I went to England, essentially to see my family. Um, in six days, I drove a thousand miles, which in England, for me now, that's on the other side of the road, uh, stick shift. Uh, it, it, it's, quite an, it's quite an endurance feat. But I really needed to go and see some family, some old aunts, and just do some things like that. But Perhaps one of the exciting things was I got to say with my sister and her husband, who are part of the church, this is Birmingham, England. Not Birmingham, this is Birmingham, England. And they've been a part of that congregation since it started in 1987. Uh, Doug and I have been involved with that. And also some good friends of ours, Malcolm and Penny Cox. I left my sister's house early on Sunday morning, and this was so exciting because we've just started in the United Kingdom a new church called the Watford Church. And Malcolm and Penny Cox, who used to be in Birmingham and Manchester, are now leading this new work. And I was thrilled because I was actually driving to the airport, but I was able to pop in and worship with them on the way. And it was just such delight and a joy. Now, you're all wondering, where is Watford, right? It's, it's north of London. But you, some of you who are soccer fans, Watford has a football club, because we call it football over there. They play in the Premier League, and some of us oldies like me no, might remember Elton John. He used to be a huge fan and the chairman of that football club, so that gives you a point of reference, okay? Um, but they've just started this young church, and again, the singing was phenomenal. Malcolm used to be trained as an opera singer, so it was f fantastic to hear. But one of the things I think was what I realized so much about these small gatherings. It reminded me of the, at the end of Acts 2 when it talks about the devotion to the fellowship. But I think even greater than that, um, it was just a joy to be reunited. And I think I see all over in these small fellowships the glad and sincere hearts of our brothers and sisters. And we're blessed because we're in a huge fellowship and we get so much encouragement from our Sundays. But to go and be with these smaller groups, I just want you to know these disciples really have glad and sincere hearts. Um, there's, there's just a joy to be reunited, you, um, reunited with old friends. And I was just thinking as AP led us in that song this morning, just as you are, come to worship. And, you know, it's amazing now because we can travel the world and pop in on these small churches and have tremendous times of fellowship. We encourage them, but they greatly encourage us. So please pray for the Watford Church. They just started, had their first service at the beginning of May, but they're up and running and close to Heathrow Airport, so somewhere you can pop in on Sunday morning. But I just wanted you to be encouraged. I was uh, just to know the joy that our brothers and sisters truly have around the world. Thank you, Vicki. In a few days, I'll be heading to a country that's underwater. Well, if you've seen the news, uh, you can paddle around the streets of Paris with the flooding they've had. Uh, I'll be it's the campus internship. Our own uh, McGurks are there with the parent McGurks. So we're visiting John, uh, John and Carol, but we all know 
the close connection we have with the church in Paris. And after that, after that I'll be heading up to Belgium, um, another uh, place that I think could use some encouragement. And so I'm very happy to share these things with you. In a way, I'll be continue. I've, I was asked to write a, a series of bulletin articles starting next Sunday for three weeks. I, I hope that the material on mission and ministry will be a good complement to the things I'll be sharing right now. Can you see the words on those street signs? Uh, that's, it's not a joke. That's actually in Istanbul, where I was just a few days ago. London, 2,500 kilometers this way. Rome, 1,300. Babylon, and it's written in Roman numerals, 723. <laughs> Istanbul is very much the center of the old world, an important city that straddles two continents, Asia and Europe. And some people might think, well, What's the deal with geography? Why do I need to understand history? And what about archaeology? What does that do? Is that important? That's really important because it shows us that the story of the Bible really happened, not in a faraway fairyland, but in countries, towns, empires, and under the influence of men and women whom we know from history, we can have a point of contact, and we know this is real. And so, academic study helps the Bible to come to life, and for many of us, it helps us to believe when it would otherwise be difficult to believe. I was invited to take part in a tour, an archaeological tour, a few months ago. And I said, yes. They said, get yourself to Turkey. We'll pay all the expenses. And so I've never done this before, but two weeks to be with a group of almost all of them are world-class scholars, uh, archaeologists, New Testament scholars, theologians, people whose books I'd read, and we got to have two weeks to eat meals together, to swim together in the sea, uh, to talk, uh, kind of to chew, chew the cud. Now, that is not quite, okay, good enough. But these are, these are some of the places that we visited. Many of them you recognize from the Bible, like Smyrna, not the one down the road, but the original Smyrna, <laughs> called Izmir, Kos, Patera, Ephesus, and so forth. And we did our exploring by boat, and we actually slept on the boat. This is the best way to do serious archaeology, I'm informed. <laughs> Of course, the entire Mediterranean is gorgeous. But unless we're willing to look into the past, we won't know how people were thinking. We won't have much of an idea what they dreamt about, what was important to them, where they put their treasures, so to speak. Digging up the past helps us to see lifestyles. It helps us to see the gap between the rich and the poor, the haves and the have-nots. It even helps us to understand difficult passages in the Bible. Here, for example, Mark Wilson, who's an expert on biblical Turkey, is pointing out a detail on a sarcophagus. Now, sarcophagus is what you put the coffin inside. Literally, a sarcophagus is a flesh eater. You put the coffin in there, but wealthy people depicted on the sides of the sarcophagus scenes from their lives, or sometimes from the lives of the gods and goddesses that they thought were important. I hear Mark is simply pointing out, you have the married woman here who has the veil. Can you see the veil? It's not much of a veil, but, it, you know, her face still shows. It's, no, it's not a, a burqa or anything. You can see a veil there. That's what married women had. 
Widows did not. Single women did not. We don't use veils today, but we use rings in our culture. In 1 Corinthians 11, for a woman to go out without the veil, well, think of it this way. What if I went into a bar, I had taken off my wedding ring, and I took a seat up there and started talking to the bartender? What would that mean? That would mean something. And if you know our culture, you know exactly what it means. No wonder Paul said, we have no other practice. Women will be veiled. And at that time, that was important. So, I took, a, a lot of people said, take pictures, take pictures. Because often I'll go uh, away and I'll only take three pictures, you know, for a whole week. So I took about a thousand. This is another sarcophagus. This one really touched me. There's an inscription you cannot read from where you're seated. But it's for the family's dog. They sent Fido off with a, a great, well, they really took care of him. That's exactly what that is. I thought you'd like that. <laughs> if you're dog lovers like us. The beauty of the Mediterranean, Smyrna, it was funny because in Izmir, uh, while we, just after we left there, they had a 4.4 earthquake. But Smyrna, or Izmir, is one of the seven churches of Revelation. And it's the second largest city in Turkey. There's a lot to see there. In fact, one, you can see the ruins of the ancient Roman city. This is where Polycarp, the, the octogenarian, was executed for his faith. And maybe you've read uh, Polycarp. This is found in the early church fathers. Very inspiring. If not, look it up after service and read this short letter. I think that would encourage you a lot. You'll be pretty amazed at his attitude. Uh, he says, you know, I've been following Christ uh, in some 80 years. I'm not about to back down now. I've come way too far. Ephesus is the most impressive and the largest biblical city that is a city of interest to Bible readers in the world. In fact, it has far more even than, than Jerusalem, an amazing site, a wonderful place to visit. And every few years, uh, we go there, we lead a tour. <laughs> I know. <laughs> if you're going to buy a fake watch, at least make sure it's the right fake brand, right? Okay. Fake Rolex, fake Omega, fake Tag Heuer, and so forth. <laughs> this is the site of the grave of the Apostle John. The whole area used to be a necropolis, a city of the dead, a giant cemetery, and that's where he was buried, right underneath there. In a Byzantine church, that is from around the 500, you can see the baptistry. They like to get uh, kind of cross shapes. But these are real baptistries. People walked into the baptistry, confessed the Lord. Uh, they were immersed. They were forgiven of their sins in the baptistry. It's none of this little sprinkle tinkle stuff. They really went under the water. One column of originally more than 100 that made up the Temple of Artemis as in Acts 19, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. For two hours, people shouted in the theater of Ephesus, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, one of the seven wonders of the world. Now all that's left, and it's not even one pillar, they just 
stack stuff on top of it. And there's, there's actually a pelican's nest at the top. I couldn't quite get the pelican, but, but that's it, you know. This is the wisdom of the world. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. At Ephesus, every time I go to Ephesus, I want to see something new. And this time, those who didn't mind hiking up a really steep hill went into a cave. It's called the Grotto of Paul and Thecla. Well, Thecla was a teenage girl who heard Paul speaking, was smitten with the message, hopefully not with Paul, but followed him. And there's a legendary account called the, the it's in the, the book that's called The Acts of Paul and Thecla. But she's a real person. Take out the legend, she was still someone who followed him. Anyway, in the cave, I, I've just zeroed in on the, the picture of Paul. Here's Thecla there. But this is the earliest surviving picture of the Apostle Paul. This is a few hundred years after he lived. Now, you can, if you can just make out the Greek, Paulos, Paulos. The description was that he was a small man. His legs were kind of bent a little bit. He, his eyebrows tended to meet in the middle. He had a long curved nose. And this is the Apostle Paul we see. And perhaps that is what he looked like. Oh, and he was bald. That was also very important for spirituality in the early centuries of the church. <laughs> Hairy people don't do well. Think of Esau, for example. They, they really don't do well. Absalom, all that hair wasn't good, didn't end well. <laughs> Here's the theater where they were shouting, greatest Artemis of the Ephesians. That's me standing in the middle of it. That's our agent, who, that's the one who invited me on this tour, and he's our agent for the Israel tour at the end of the year, if you're joining us. You'll meet him then. We had a wonderful evening right there in front of the library of Celsus. Amazing, all these rocks dedicated to emperors long gone. But we are able, in hindsight, and with our Bibles, to understand what it's all about. Ephesus is here. Miletus is there. You may remember Paul's message in Acts chapter 20. He summons the elders of Miletus to come to him. Basically, he's on a very tight schedule. And they come to him on foot. They would have to take a ferry also. But it's 40 miles away. In other words, the elders had to take two days just to get to Paul, then they would spend some time together, then two days back. Miletus, beautiful place. That's their theater. That's one of the biblical scholars named Ben Witherington. Uh, and again, to meet people who have such insight, whose, whose books are selling by the millions, is really cool. Because I can say, what did you mean by that? Did you change your mind on this? Miletus. This is an inscription in the theater. It says, the place of the Jews who are fearing God. Because in the theater, they were like reserved seats. There were areas where different kinds of people sat. Shows us that even Jews went to the theater. Hmm. Mark Wilson, maybe the top scholar today on biblical Turkey, Asia Minor. We had a lot of time to chat. We went to Mira. Now, there was a man named Nicholas born in nearby Patara, but he lived in Mira. Nicholas was known for his love for children and families and the poor. 
He became a Christian in the persecution under Diocletian in the year 303. Nicholas refused to back down. They worked him over pretty well. In fact, analysis of his bones shows that they had broken his nose at least twice because his nose in the, in the new version is way off to the side. This is a tough guy, not a flabby, jolly kind of Nicholas. The historical, later they called him Saint, the historical Saint Nicholas was a gritty and determined believer, Nicholas of Myra. We went to the nearby Greek island of Kos, Hippocrates, the father of medicine, the one who said, basically, we've got to take out the superstition, because a lot of this these remedies are not right. And furthermore, we can't just bank on the doctor. We need to have a combination of diet, good attitude, and exercise. And that's what's key for most health issues. So we crossed over to, to Kos, which you, as you can see, a lot of Greek islands are right off the edge of Turkey. We're making our way this way, in that direction. Here's Hippocrates. the father of medicine, and we know him especially from the Hippocratic Oath. Istanbul is a truly amazing city. Part of Turkey, just this part, is in Europe. 97% of Turkey is in Asia. The Black Sea connects to the Sea of Marmara, connects to the Aegean and the Mediterranean. And it was it's always great to go to Istanbul, talk about a cool city. I met with our brother, Andy Prasani, who's the preacher of our church there. Gave him some teaching materials and uh, to their tremendous joy, funds for campus ministry, thanks to the generosity of one of the families here at North River. Here you're looking at Hagia Sophia, which is built in the fifth century. This is after Mary had become the mother of God. You can see Meter Theu. And interestingly, the builder, the Emperor Justinian, and Constantine, the one who murdered his son and his mother, were viewed as saints by this time. Never mind the murder and being bullies. But it's an amazing uh, place. The Church of Hagia Sophia, that is, Holy Wisdom, became a mosque once the Muslim armies overran it and kind of went back and forth. And in a mosque on either side of the front, and here it's funny, because here you see Mary and Jesus, but here you see the words Muhammad and Allah, as all mosques have. Now, Ataturk, the architect of modern Turkey, wisely changed Hagia Sophia into a museum in the early 1920s. Just outside the door is the baptistry. And this is in the 500s, you can see clearly this is something that gets you very wet. You walk down into it. Right across the way is the Blue Mosque. This is 400 years old, approximately. I'd never been able to get in before because I wasn't permitted or the lines were too long and I hate to wait. But I got in and I turned my iPhone heavenward and, and got an incredible, well, just a picture of the artwork in the mosque. It really helps me to get into their world and to imagine what it was that our brothers and sisters saw. Here, for example, where the Aegean Sea meets the Mediterranean. 
shipwrecks. We went, even went into a museum of marine archaeology. That is shipwrecks. So much as, this is a biblical scholar. His specialty is First and Second Thessalonians. And this is a man who makes Turkish delight. <laughs> so one thing I had to do, I was commissioned by a higher power, my wife, bring back Turkish delight. And not just any gooey Turkish delight, the quality stuff. Well, this was from Hafiz Mustafa and Sons, established 1864. And the guy I was talking to, not that guy, different guy, he was the great, 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 great grandson of the founder. I watched them cut it and pack it and vacuum shrink it. Incredible Turkish delight. If you want more pictures from Turkey and, and so forth, please visit my Facebook pages. What could you pray for if you think about this great nation of 75 million. Well, one is, of course, it's becoming gradually more Islamic. Uh, we're, we're familiar with uh, the call of the, of the muzzin out of the minaret, very loud. Uh, in a place like Turkey, Islam has survived because it isn't violent and radical. But that could change. We hope it won't. There's terrorism. Of course, Wednesday, uh, the day I flew back, there was a bombing that they attacked a police bus, killed 11 policemen. That was just three kilometers from where we were when that, when that bomb went off. That was not an Islamic thing. That was, uh, that was a, a Kurdish issue. The economy is really bad right now. And part of it is because Turkey took a stand with Russia. A Russians flew over Turkey. They shot down one of their warplanes. And so Russia cut off commerce. And that's really hard. They were very dependent. Amazing that merchants selling one kilogram, 2.2 pounds of tomatoes, for seven cents were having a hard time getting buyers. And on the bus, Mark Wilson jumped out. He saw uh, there was a stand by the road selling oranges. And he, he grabbed a bag of 50 oranges, huge smile on the bus, said, how much was that? He said, five lira, $1.65 for 50 delicious oranges. They've got some challenges. And if you know anything about the politics, they've got dictatorship. One other reason to pray is that we have a sister church right there in Istanbul. And you'll love them if you ever have a chance to visit. In my last couple of minutes, I'm going to talk about Philippians. That's kind of the theme of the month. Philippi is not in Turkey. It's over here in Macedonia. Um, here's Istanbul right here. And you had a sermon last week based around Philippi. Philippians is one of the four so-called prison epistles. Most scholars think Paul wrote all four of these at the same time, either from Ephesus or Caesarea or most likely from Rome. What does Philippians emphasize? If I asked you, you might well say joy, because often it's said joy is the theme. It's a theme. I don't know if it's the theme. Christ, perhaps, would be the theme, mentioned many times, but even then I'm not so sure. As I read Philippians, I think Philippians is about love. It's about selflessness. It's about giving our lives to others. And the Philippians were having a hard time doing that. And they needed real-life examples like Timothy, Paul, Epaphroditus, and especially Jesus Christ. Our text is in chapter 1, verse 12. Then why does it say 2.12? I guess I was working out my sermon with fear and trembling or something. And my hand moved. But it should be 1.12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has actually resulted in the advance of the gospel. 
so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard, the praetorium, and to everyone else that my imprisonment is in the cause of Christ. And then Paul makes one more comment. Most of the brothers in the Lord have gained confidence from my imprisonment and dare even more to speak the message fearlessly. This is our text. May God bless it as we talk about it for just a couple of minutes. It's one of my favorite parts of Philippians. In this great book in chapter 1, even though he's in prison, Paul still views himself not primarily as a prisoner who is also a Christian. He's a Christian with a message who happens to be a prisoner. Frequently, that was his case. It's a question of identity. His primary identity is not based on where he is, his circumstances, his suffering, or being a victim. His primary identity is that he is Christ's man. And that is a good call for us. Because if you're like me, if I'm a bit uncomfortable, I'm not in the ideal setting, I tend to kind of switch off. I'm less likely to share my faith. Paul never forgot who he was. An amazing fellow. In chapter 2, we see it's a whole chapter on being giving and selfless. But I think that even more than fear or cowardice, it's selfishness at the en that's the enemy of evangelism. We just don't want to get involved. We don't want people to complicate our lives. Chapter 3, Paul tells us to keep going. Keep going. Keep going strong. And in chapter 4, we see, we learn, I think he says this snippet for the end, that some of the imperial guard, that is the Roman soldiers, had become Christians. That, that might, might point to him being in Rome, but, but the imperial guard was all over the empire, not, not just in Rome. So the whole, when you read Philippians next time, read it thinking about this theme of selflessness and particularly think of the great apostle Paul. Now, the very next section tells us that not everyone who shares the faith does it with the right attitude. Some people preach Christ out of envy, others out of goodwill, others out of rivalry, and some preachers are not even sincere. But, believe, believe it or not, that's okay, because as long as the truth about Christ is being proclaimed, even if the proclaimer is messed up, in his heart or her motives, God can still work. Christ is proclaimed and we can rejoice. Sometimes we're so caught up and paralyzed over, well, it wasn't someone from our group. Should I read that book? Should I watch that video? Even if these people had wrong motives, the outsiders, if they're preaching Christ, we should rejoice. God is repairing the way by his spirit in the world for the kingdom to continue to come. And so this is our text, again, Philippians 1.12. Notice what he says. It's the opposite of what you'd expect. You would think that if Tom and Jeff got thrown in prison, things might suffer a bit at North River. I'm not saying that, I'm not making a suggestion. I'm not trying to imply anything here. But it actually went better, it seems, or at least it went better than you would have thought because of that situation. He was arrested for being a Christian. But, but he's not saying here that people found out why I was arrested and so Christ is glorified. No, no, no. They knew why he was arrested. 
but it's how he, I think it's how he behaved, how he carried himself, despite the fact that he'd been unfairly arrested, imprisoned. That is what led to, plus his opening his mouth, that's what led to the gospel spreading. And then I really love this verse 14. He doesn't say that everyone became more fearless because of me. He says most did. And there's no hint of condemnation. He's just happy that there's progress here. Some of them maybe will become bolder later on. That's okay. Uh, we, we let these things grow. Conviction grows organically. I'm going to share some observations and a few takeaways, and then I'll sit down. When a Christian is on the scene, the word gets out somehow. If there's a Christian there, the word will get out. Secondly, our example affects others. How Paul carried himself in prison had an impact not only on the lost souls who viewed him like the Roman guards, but also on fellow Christians who were aware of the facts. Our example, for better or for worse, affects others. In the New Testament, evangelism is not orchestrated. It's not forced. It's the spontaneous overflow of a grateful and excited heart. And one more observation. Even if motives are wrong, someone else's motives, but even my motives, if they're wrong, the Spirit of Christ may still be at work. Christ may still be proclaimed. And for that, we should be grateful. And so let me leave you with these thoughts as we wrap up the service. First, this. Turkey is a biblical land. <laughs> okay. Think about that. All of Paul's missionary journeys go through Turkey. It's a place where he wrote his letters, where he spent the most time. Not Israel, but for some reason we forget this. But it's huge. And that's an academic point, but it may be of interest and inspiration down the road. Secondly, evangelism, and Paul demonstrates it here in Philippians 1 is the natural overflow of a heart captured by God. When God has us, one way or another, it's going to come out. We're going to be sharing what we know. Don't focus on motives too much. Have a great week. Remember Philippians, the example of Paul. Reach out and touch someone else's heart.